Good morning. I am in 1 Kings 17, and we, in, we are in the middle of our uh, Think, Talk, and Act Christianly series. And I actually think I have a quote from uh, John Stott back there, do I? Let's read a quote from John Stott before we read the word of the Lord this morning. We must allow the word of God to confront us to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning in 1 Kings 17. And let him speak to our spirits. I'm going to read uh, the entire chapter. It's a big chunk, I realize. Um, two things you need to know going into it. The chapter centers around Elisha, um, excuse me, Elijah, the prophet. And um, he is actually, this chapter represents three years of his life. He's actually going into hiding. So three years of his life. And King Ahab has just taken the throne recently. And uh, scripture in the, in the passage before this actually says, he did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings before him. So the most wicked king that ever sat on the throne is sitting on the throne. And Elijah is the prophet. Now let's pick it up in uh, chapter 17, verse 1 of 1 Kings. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, that's King Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Cherith Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Cherith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. The word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I have directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, And bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar, and a little olive oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the God of Israel has said. The jar of flour will not be used up and the jar of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She, the widow, said to Elijah, What do you have against me, O man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. 
He took him from her arms. He carried him to the upper room where he was staying, and he laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house, and he gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Holy Spirit, would you enliven our hearts today? We really don't need my words Father, we need to hear from you. We need to hear from your heart. And Lord, I ask as we open your word, as we share it, that you would enliven us, that you would embolden us, that you would convict us. Father, would you take us back to places we've previously been and would you enliven us by your spirit and then send us out into the world around us. Father, show us what it means to act Christianly. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So this thing starts out, and you have Elijah, and Elijah's this wild prophet, and he busts into King Ahab's palace. And you can imagine, he busts into Ahab's palace, and he says, hey, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain until I give a command that rain comes. I said it before, but this chapter literally represents three years of Elijah's life. He spent it in hiding. First, he spent it in a little ravine where ravens, literally birds, fed him. Then he spent it with a widow. So there's a three-year period where he is in hiding. And the question is, why is he there? And the question is also, how can we pull from this how we are to act Christianly? Because I think most of us think about acting Christianly, and we tend to think um, acting religious, acting nice. And to be honest with you, I don't care too much for niceties, nor do I care too much for religion, nor do I care too much for church in the form many of us think of it. Can I be that bold? So the question then is, as we look at this passage of Scripture, as we look at the Old Testament, it's like, Lord, what are you saying to us, and how can we look at the life of Elijah here and then act Christianly in our own lives and in our own day? I have four keys that I think I'm going to pull out of this, but before I even open that, I want, to, I want you to think with me for just a second. I think God probably has at least three purposes that are happening here in this whole story as Elijah goes into hiding. Number one, he's preserved. Okay, Elijah's life is being preserved because you have Queen Jezebel who's married to King Ahab, and we're not going to get too much into that story today, but she's the most ruthless She is the most ruthless queen that's ever sat on the throne. And she's killing God's prophets. So the first thing is God sends Elijah into hiding to preserve his life. The second thing is Elijah is prepared. Okay, I'm actually going to propose to you that uh, Elijah faces the biggest task and the largest calling in his life on the backside of these three years. And I'll actually say I don't think he's ready at the front end. So God sends him into hiding, first in this little ravine, and then with this widow, to prepare him for what's coming. Because on the back side of this story, he's getting ready to stand against 850 prophets, 450 of Baal, 400 of Asherah, which all manner of evil and child sacrifice and sexual sin and all sorts of things are happening in this kingdom at this time. And he's going to have to stand against them. But at this point, I don't think he's ready. So number one, he's preserved. Number two, Elijah's prepared for the ministry that God has ahead of him. So let me make immediate application. 
if you feel like you're being stuffed into hiding or you're sitting in a ravine somewhere where not very much light gets through, take courage because God may be preparing you for what's next. Abby and I were out west with our kids this past summer and we went through a uh, slot canyon. And at some points it was like three feet wide and even two feet wide, one foot wide, and it was like 100 feet to the top. If you feel like you're in a ravine like Elijah was, Take heart, because most likely God is preparing you for what's next. And you may want to even stop uh, asking all the whys and the what ifs and why am I here and start going, Lord, for what purpose have you allowed this in my life? It'll change your perspective. So number one, he's prepared or preserved. Number two, Elijah is prepared. And number three, the nation, which is interesting, we just had uh, Ruth pray for us, but the nation is prepared for repentance and restoration so that, that God can bring that nation back to him. So, now, with sort of the table set like that, um, I want to take pull four things out of here about how we act Christianly. So my first point, how do you act Christianly? You obey the direction of God. And that sounds uh, simple on one hand. That sounds terribly difficult on the other. And you might sit out there and go, how do I know what God's speaking? That's a good question. It's a good question. I often wonder when you read a passage like this, and it literally says Elijah's directed um, to go to the Cherith Ravine. It literally says in verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, leave here. I wonder how the word of the Lord came. Was it an audible voice? Was it a dream? Was it a vision? Did he open something up in the few written scriptures that existed during this time? It's hard to know exactly. But what is fascinating is the still, small voice of the Lord directed him to go to a ravine. Now, if you came and met with me this week and said, Michael, I think the, Lord, you know, the Lord's calling me to go live in a ravine. We might have to test it, right? But God called him. And then from this ravine, uh, he literally goes and God directs him to go to Zarephath. And Zarephath literally means refining or crucible. Okay? So God didn't design this little three-year period to be necessarily comfortable for Elijah. He actually designed the entire thing to be preparatory to prepare Elijah for what was to come. So these events, I think, probably taught Elijah to rely on God spiritually, mentally, even Physically. And Elijah, I would propose to you, is being taught to act Christianly. Elijah learned to be a man of God. He learned patience. Can you imagine sitting in a ravine for three years? I'm sure he was stoked when the ravens first showed up and brought him food and meat, bread and meat. I'm sure he was like thrilled, right? But by like month six, when there's no salt on that meat and no garlic and nothing's changed, and he's all by himself sitting in a little slot canyon, what do you think he's doing? Starting to grumble about, against God? Sounds like another story I know about the Old Testament, you know, the manna that God sent from heaven. They were stoked when it first showed up, but after a while, ugh, manna. We wish we could go back to the leeks and onions of Egypt. We don't like this stuff. So Elijah learns patience, he learns humility, he learns to be alone with God. He's prepared for what's ahead of him with Mount Carmel and the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. I actually went to this high school, believe it or not. It's very funny that we're meeting here at this point in our church life. But I, uh, I stood up against a, a bully once or twice. 
And I thought I was such a big shot for standing up against one to two guys. Elijah's getting ready to stand up against 850 on a mountain. What he is getting ready to face is so extraordinary, and he is all alone. If you think you're alone today, take heart. Take heart. Because it's in our aloneness sometimes. It's in our suffering. It's when we feel most isolated. It's when you're sitting at the bottom of the ravine looking up at the sunlight or sitting in the widow's upstairs upper room going, Lord, why am I here and what are you doing? And we can all probably resonate with that at one point or another in our lives. But God says to Elijah, go and hide. And I think the other thing that's important here as we sort of look at obeying the direction of God is when God says go, uh, to whatever place he says go, that's the place of his blessing. Follow me? Now, I find that many American Christians, of which I have been one, I'm going to use that since we already talked about that a little bit earlier, but often uh, say, I'm going to go this way. And they start going this way, and they say, hey, God, will you bless it? Will you bless me? I decided I'm going to go do this, and I'm going to ask you to come and put your hand on what I'm doing and bless it. And I would actually say to you, that is theologically inaccurate. It's wrong. The question is not, oh, I'm going to go do what I jolly well please. Lord, will you come bless it? No, no, no. The question is, Lord, what are you doing? And, and, and how can I be about your business? How can I follow you? Now, here's what's guaranteed. If you incline your ear, the ear, your literal ear or the ears of your heart, to the voice of the Lord Jesus, and you are obeying his direction in your life, his blessing is guaranteed. Guaranteed. You don't have to go around, Lord, will you, will you bless me? I, I realize this was a little snapshot into my own walk with the Lord, but... Um, Abby and I have been going through some just things in our, in our personal life, and I realized that every morning I would get up, I get up really early, my alarm you know, goes off, and it's dark, and I have a couple hours before life sort of begins, and I'm in the Word, and I have a five-year journal, and I do our one-year Bible, and I'm just praying and, and seeking the Lord. But I realized the moment my eyes flitter open, I, I'm like, oh, Lord, would you have mercy on me? Oh, Lord, would you have grace on me. And I actually began, I was, it was the other day, I was sort of thinking about it, and I was journaling, and I was like, you know what, Lord, I think I'm actually, it's not that that prayer is wrong. There's nothing theologically, per se, wrong with it, but I'm not living in the positional reality that is already there in Christ Jesus. In other words, he's already had mercy on me. He's had mercy on me, he's having mercy on me, and he will have mercy on me. He's had grace on me, he will have grace, on, or he is having grace on me, and he will have grace on me. And I began to shift it just a little bit in those morning hours and go, when my eyes flitter open, I began to go, Lord, I praise you that your mercy is active in my life. And I praise you that your grace is active in my life. And I praise you that your presence is here in our life. Now from that place, Lord, would you speak to me? And it's, it's a slight little paradigm shift, but it, it actually compels me, I think, to um, stay in step with the Lord instead of asking him to come and bless me. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Now, <clears throat> I have also found in sitting with people, counseling, having coffee, having lunch, whatever, when I sit there and I look somebody deep in the eyes and I look at them and I go, tell me an area of your life that is outside the bounds of what God has called you to be about. They can almost always tell me. 
Tell me an area of your life that is not fully surrendered to the Lordship of Christ Jesus. If they're honest, they can almost always, it flickers across their eyes. And sometimes I register it, and then they go, there's nothing. But I saw the flicker. But you know why I know that? Because I'm the same way. I'm the same way. Now, God, if if you want to act Christianly, the first key is to obey the direction of God. So God is looking for a people who will just go when he says go. God called us to be at Hoggard. Do you believe that? God actually called us. I disagreed with our elders on it. How about that? I actually disagreed with my wife on it. They all went, we think God's called us to be at Hoggard. I went, I don't want to go back to Hoggard. I've already been to Hoggard. But I took it to the Lord, and guess where we ended up? Now, I tell you that because this is really important as we march through this. Um, It's actually important to the next point. But it is so vital that you as people have people around you who keep you in check and keep your ego balloon from getting too high. That's really prone in American pastor, celebrity, whatever culture that we've somehow developed. It is so important. One of my favorite things about Saltbox is the elder group that we have. They're all older, they're all wiser, and they've all done ministry like three times as long as me. And you know the safeguards that that represents? That's incredible. I don't have to be the oldest, smartest, wisest dude in the room. No, no, no. That gives me actually the ability to be the one who's hearing and sensing the, the passion and the vision of the Lord and then even stoking the engine so that we can go. And then they can come along and guard. Now, here's the thing. You need people in your life. If you want to discern the direction of God in your life, if you want to act Christianly, if you want to obey the direction of God, you need people in your life. So here's the question today. Are you called where, are, are you where he's called you to be? I had lunch with somebody this past week, and my question to them was actually, they were talking about coming to Saltbox, and I said, listen, I'm not all that interested in you just showing up at Saltbox. Find out if you're called. Find out if you're called. Has God called you to salt box? Because see, what happens is what we've developed here in America is we walk in and we're like, how'd Perry do at the worship today? How was, how, how was Perry's outfit with those holy jeans? How did, how did Michael do preaching? His head was a little extra shiny. The room, oh my goodness, can you believe this church? They meet in a cafeteria and there's... Now, here's, and here's my point. I'm being silly, but here's the point. When you know you're called somewhere... You stop asking silly questions and making it sort of narcissistic and about you. And you start going, how can I become a part of the solution and what God is doing in this place? I'd rather a small church of people who are called together by the Spirit of God and commissioned to change a city than a massive church of people who are coming in every Sunday going, how's the weather? How's the preaching? How's the worship? Get a part of the solution and find out if you're called and if you're called, dig in any way you can. Dig into relationship, dig into ministry and start coming up with even ideas with which we can go out and engage the city, which are coming, by the way. Number one, if you want to act Christianly, you must obey the direction of God. I want to point out three things before I go to my sort of my next main point, but Um, Elijah's obedience here is tested by monotony. Some of you right now may be being tested by monotony. For three years, he sat in a ravine. Well, probably a year and a half, thereabouts. And then a year and a half, he sat in a widow's house, a pagan widow's 
house, someone who didn't live in Israel, which we'll talk about in a minute. But he's tested with monotony. He's a man probably somewhere in his prime, 30-something. We don't know exactly, but he's like, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And what is he doing? Sitting, waiting, learning humility, learning patience, learning to depend on the Lord. He's sitting. He's waiting. I'd encourage you today, if you're at a point in your life and you're going, I'm being tested by the monotony. It may even be the monotony of the kids get up, kids eat breakfast, I change a diaper, I pack lunch, I drive the kids to school. It may be the monotony of I get up, I eat breakfast, I go to work, I, you fill in the blank. We hit these points in our life where we actually go, oh my goodness, this is so boring, this is so dull, and I want to actually say to you, if you're there, let God meet you there. Let him meet you there in the monotony, in the daily sort of grind, because he will. Elijah was tested by the monotony. Let me also say, Great men and women of God do consistently what others do occasionally. It's worth writing down. Great men and women of God do consistently, through the monotony, what others do occasionally. Elijah's obedience was also tested by loneliness. Oh, my goodness. When I went to high school here, I gave, I'd given my life to um, the Lord early on. But when I got here, um, I went to a conference I called DCLA up in D.C., and I got so revved up with the power of the gospel. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm called to, like, share Jesus now. And I came back, and we started this Christian club here at high school. And, um, and I even put on a ring. It was, I called it my no-sex ring. I was like, I'm waiting for my wife. And I felt so lonely. Other kids made fun of me. I felt so, I was like, gosh, this, I mean, I came back so fired up, and then all of a sudden, about halfway through it, I was like, man, this is lonely. We got to the end, and they gave me so many senior superlatives, I was like, gosh, I didn't know y'all felt about me like that the whole time. That's not the way I thought. I thought I was all alone. But here's the point. God may test you with loneliness. You may be in a spot right now where you're going, I am lonely, and this hurts. And it may be that it is part of, of God's forging of you. Elijah's obedience was also tested by insecurity. Can you imagine sitting there in the ravine and he gets the bread and the meat from the birds every day, which are no longer cool? And he's drinking out of that brook, and what happens to the brook? What? It dries up. He's sitting there and he's like, oh gosh, I, I mean, I got meat, this is great. And I got bread, but... God, what about water? Hello? Insecurity. And then God calls him to go to a widow's house. Can you imagine that insecurity? Uh, so, so just imagine for a second. Let's say I came in here today and I announced that the Lord has called me to move out of uh, my home with Abby and our kids, and I'm going to move into a widow's house. What are you all going to say? <laughs> Brian says, I'll find another church. Now, <laughs> amen. I'll go with you. <laughs> but here's the deal. God called him to move into a widow's house. Can you imagine what the people of that city must have said? Can you imagine? That's being tested by insecurity. 
The second thing, so the first thing we have if you want to act Christianly is you must obey the direction of God. The second thing in order to act Christianly is you must humble yourself. I got to say, I think humility in the American church is at an all-time low. I mean, I really do. Amongst pastors and leaders, and I am so grieved. Now, let me offer a little bit of a qualifier here. I'm, I'm studying um, uh, George Whitfield. Um, and then D.L. Moody, and then another, um, another revivalist. But, but I'm looking at the life of D.L. Moody. You guys heard of D.L. Moody? I, I actually quoted him last week. But one of the things that's amazing about D.L. Moody is, um, and if you, if you read the people who were closest to him, they've actually said in multiple different letters and instances, when he prayed, he was so humble before God, contrite, open, Humble, dependent, surrendered, like a little child. I mean, his his closest friends would go, when this guy prays, he is so surrendered to the lordship of Christ Jesus, able to obey and follow wherever he calls. But he walks out of that prayer, and what rises up is this confidence, this boldness, this direction. And so he's leading confidently and yet maintaining this humble posture before God. So let that be a qualifier. How do you act Christianly? You humble yourself, which happens before God. But this whole period for Elijah is preparing him for God's plan. It's getting him ready. Mentally, though, I would say to you that mentally Elijah must have struggled. Now think of this. There's seven or eight things that I think happens here that actually um, humble Elijah. The first that happens is he has to swallow charity. He had to go mooch off a widow. Can you imagine? He's this man of God. He's respected. Tell me the most respected pastor or leader or whoever you think of in the United States, and all of a sudden they abandon it all and go live off somebody's charity. Everybody in the whole nation knows Elijah, and he has to go live off someone's charity. He's got to go mooch off of her. The second thing that happened is he's in a patriarchal culture, so it's all fiercely male, um, and he has to go depend on a, let's say that again. He has to go depend on a woman. God called him to submit himself to go and sit under a, under a woman's house. I can't imagine how that little town must have gossiped about what was going on in that house. So he has to live with and depend on a woman. He has to go and ask for help from someone who is impoverished. He has to go and ask for help from a Gentile. Now, here's what's amazing. This lady is not part of the family of God. This lady is not an Israelite. This lady is outside the bounds of who God would have even approved of sort of in that day or so they thought. And, and God sends Elijah to this widow. Now, a couple things that I think you ought to know about this widow. Zarephath um, is where Jezebel, this evil queen, came from. Zarephath, or Sidon, that larger region, is uh, where Jezebel's God came from. So who do you think that widow worshipped? Yeah, Baal, Asherah. Did she worship the God of heaven? Did she worship Elijah's God? Did she fear Elijah's God? And yet, who did God call Elijah to go live with? Then he actually shows up and he asks the widow to give him a drink. And that's no problem for her, right? Because she's going to draw water from the well. But then right after that, he said, and please bring me some bread. 
And then this whole story unfurls. And this lady literally has this little bit of flour and this little bit of oil, and she's going home to bake this bread, and then she and her son are going to eat their last meal. Now, remember, there's a drought in the land because Elijah went to King Ahab and said, there's going to be a drought for three years. And they're literally eating their last meal, and now they're going to lay down and die. And what does Elijah require of her? Who gets the first bite of bread? Who gets the first loaf of bread? Elijah, can you imagine? I mean, I can't even imagine. Just, I just can't even, like, I don't know if it's my American chivalry. I just can't even. I'm going into some poor lady's house, and I'm required by God to eat the rest of her food. Now, make a note. Make a note, church, because this is worth, like, noting. God always requires of his kids to give them the first to give him the first, to give him the best. There's a thing afoot right now in American Christianity that basically says, well, tithing was of the Old Testament, and I don't have to tithe because it's been fulfilled. And I would go, yeah, I agree with that. Actually, what the New Testament preaches is radical generosity where you give everything. Tithe is just the benchmark. It's just the beginning. And I think what that is actually saying is if you get up in the morning and it's your house, and your car, and your marriage, and your kids, and your life, and your ministry, and your business, and your blah, 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 then God is like X'd out of the equation. And the reason he requires us to give him first is because it's how he measures, and um, it, it's, it's, an, it's indicative of where your heart is. Let's say it like that. It's indicative of where your heart is. He required this lady to give him the last loaf of bread. And he promised her, if you're willing to do that, the bread little jar, the flour jar will never run dry. The oil jar will never run out. But he required that she give everything. Each of these things would have brought Elijah way down in his humility before God. And let me say, before God will use you, he will make you humble and dependent on him. He will. I promise. The third thing is, how do you act Christianly? You go and live among and love outsiders. John Stott actually said also, our love grows soft if it is not strengthened by truth, and our love grows hard if it is not softened by love. So go back to our uh, third point there. God calls us to live among and love outsiders. I actually think the American church, I'd include me in this, is at an all-time low in our success of li loving, living among and loving on outsiders. God called Elijah to leave the comforts of his church, of his community, of his people, and go and live among a pagan woman who worshipped another god. Live among and love on this lady. One of the things I see across American evangelicalism is we often claim the promises of God, go with me here, without the accompanying scriptural mandates. So, for example, Matthew 18, 20 says, For where two or three gather in my name, I am with them always. So I hear that all the time. Two or three people. We're gathered, therefore, God's here. But when you read the whole context, it actually says when two or three, the whole context of that scripture is when two or three are gathered to repent to confess to one another, then I am there. But what we've done in America is it's like we've picked and chosen these little parts of, of the Bible and just make a side note, if you will. 
How often do we claim a promise of God without looking at the entirety of the chunk or the scripture or the passage? There's whole little books on God's promises. And I'm not against quoting his promises in your life, but what I would be against is picking and choosing and proof texting little verses and go, well, God's here with me because there's three people. Not necessarily. I think there's whole churches across this great nation where God has left the building and nobody even knows. I don't know about you, but I don't want anything to do with that. Because God's presence, his purpose, his love, his call is vital. So how do you act Christianly? You live among and you love outsiders. I would even go so far as to say, guys, if we are not stopping to meet our neighbors, if we're not stopping to talk to our coworkers, if we're not sharing Jesus at least non-verbally with our life, at most verbally with our words, we are missing it. If you've not been gripped with the reality that there's a world out there who is lost and doesn't have hope. I don't even know how people live without the hope of Christ Jesus. I don't know how they live. We are called, if we're going to be a part of transforming a city, we are called to carry him every day. The fourth thing that I want to point out, and it's probably the most important. How do you act Christianly? You stop asking the world to come to you and you get out and go to it with open arms and a loving heart. Now what happens in this last part of the chapter is we actually see this widow and her son gets sick and then what eventually happens to her son? He dies, son dies. And the widow has the same response that most of us do when something bad happens. Oh, God's punishing me. We did a whole sermon on suffering a few, probably been a month ago now, might be a little more, but we talked about that. It's worth going back and listening to on our podcast because that's inaccurate. God's not punishing this lady. But all of a sudden she's angry at Elijah and she's accusing him. She's probably saying stuff in her grief that she doesn't necessarily mean and it's all just flowing out of her mouth, this frustration. Now, could Elijah have gotten up on a soapbox and whapped this lady? Is she worshiping the God of heaven? Probably not. Has she participated maybe even in human sacrifice to Baal or Asherah? Probably so. Has she maybe even participated in all the sexual sin that goes on and revelry that goes on with worshiping those two gods? Maybe so. And this lady says, what have you done with my son? This is the crux of this whole message right here. Does Elijah shame her? No. Does he beat her up? He tells her to repent, doesn't he? Does he tell her to get right? Does he tell her to stop drinking? We could go on and on and on, couldn't we? What does he say? What? Give me the boy. 
Give me the boy. If you get anything out of this message today, get this. God calls us as his kids to go out into the world and care about what the world cares about, not what we care about. And we have an entire Christian evangelical America at this moment demanding that the world care about what we care about. And I would tell you, I think it's an error. Because this Elijah, in this moment, didn't tell that lady to get right. He actually said, give me the boy. Give me the thing that you care most about. Give me the thing that you're hurting most about. And let me address that first. Now, go with me here a second, church. People, we talked about it last week. People are on a journey. We're all on a journey. And I struggle with the Christianity that goes, it's a three-step process and then it's over. Okay? We're on a journey. And if Elijah would have whopped that lady that day and said, get right, you need to repent, what would it have done to her journey? probably brought it to a screeching halt. How many times has the church done that to people who are on a journey? The church somehow demands, and I've even been part of it, they demand that as people are on this journey, they're at the destination when they're at the beginning. You follow me? Church, you may even need to evaluate your own heart and your own life and actually choose to broaden your view because we talked about Thomas last week and the very Apostle Thomas's journey through doubt, his journey of coming to Christ Jesus. But you may even need to adjust your own viewpoint about people who are currently living in sin. Was this lady most likely living in sin? Anyone? Most likely. Yeah. There you go. She said she was. And yet, Elijah, we don't see that he corrected her. We see that he loved on her. We see that God provided for her in her sin. We see that every day God blessed her. Now, she did chose to obey the thing that God called her to do, the next thing, which is provide for my prophet Elijah. And did she do it? Yes. Now, she did her part of staying in the journey. She stayed in the journey. You guys might know some people who are on a journey. As long as they're in the journey, keep loving. Keep serving. And I would say we as a church must find out what Wilmington cares about and Wilmington is hurting on, and that's where we must go and serve and embrace our city. If I got a touch vulnerable, I would actually even say to you, there are times where people will ask me, am I a believer or am I a pastor? And I want to go, oh, because I don't want to be identified with some of what's happening in the church right now. And I say things like, I'm a Christ follower, which is true. I've surrendered my life to Christ Jesus. I'll say something like that. Yes, I'm a pastor. I finally admit it. When I meet somebody on an airplane, though, I'm like, I did this just the other day. Oh, I'm a landscaper, which I am. I am, it's true. It's where our income comes from. And part of the reason I do that is because I don't want to impede their journey. That's right. Because the moment I say I'm a pastor, what are they going to do? Pull the shades down. Shut the garage door. I'm not interested. Okay, thanks. Nice to meet you. I'm going to turn this way and order my beer and be done because I don't want to talk to this guy. I'm being kind of silly, but here's the point. The point in we here in America, I think, are at risk of not keeping our hearts and our minds open to people out there. 
Yeah. Have you seen the church be ugly to people? Have you seen the church be judgy with people? That's a J-corporating word. Have you seen the church, maybe you've even been somebody on the other end of the stick. Now, I am not saying we let down on what the Bible says is sin, but I am saying we open up and begin to embrace that people can be in various spots on the journey. Look how this chapter ends. Then the woman, now the, the boy was, uh, came back to life, which I, I also have to point out here, and then we've got to wrap this up. Uh, no one had ever been resurrected from the dead that I know of in the Bible prior to this. Elijah is praying for something that has never happened. What faith this guy had. But the boy is resurrected from the dead, and the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. If she's not a believer, she's real close. But how many years did it take of her living in him living in her house? You follow me? Oh, in the coming months, we're working on some things that I think God has called us to do in the city. And I have fought saying, this is who we are, and this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. But God has put a unique DNA thumbprint on this little salt box church. And I believe he has called us to be about shifting the culture of a city. And so I'm not praying, what does our church need? I'm not praying, what do the churches of Wilmington need? I'm praying, what does Wilmington need? And how can we meet Wilmington there? I am literally praying, Lord, would you give me the boy? Elijah's words, Lord, give me the boy. Now, how do you act Christianly? You obey the direction of God. How do you act Christianly? You humble yourself. How do you act Christianly? You live among and love on outsiders. And how do you act Christianly? You stop asking the world to come to you and you start going to it.